Good morning, everyone. I'm Tom Nelson, and uh, we're really glad you're here at the Leewood campus, so welcome to Christ Community. Uh, it's just always a delight to have you here, and uh, it is a beautiful day, a uh, beautiful morning, and I sense as I've greeted people uh, first service and then you as well that uh, a lot of buoyant spirits around here. So uh, I think we've all been waiting for spring. It's just, I hope you sense the presence of Christ here and that you are loved and cared for, and uh, we're just delighted that you've come to worship with us today. Um, well, they call it March Madness, but uh, can I suggest to you it also could be called March Sadness? <laughs> I mean, unless you're one team, inevitably, uh, there's a lot of busted brackets and bummed out hearts. KU fans, Wichita State fans, K-State fans, March Madness can become March Sadness for sure, but I like March Madness. Uh, There's something about it that really excites me, particularly the final moments in a contested basketball game. You know, the last two minutes, for example, when the intensity picks up, right? As the time is running down, the intensity ratchets up, certainly for the refs. The refs watch every tenth of a second of the clock. They even go to the monitor, for goodness sakes. Every second matters in the final moments of a game. The coaches know this, the fans know this, the refs know this, we all know this. And we're locked in like bird dogs on opening hunting season. The last two minutes, we're locked in. The coach usually gathers his players in March Madness for a final push, sometimes more than once. And you know that moment? where every shot counts, every foul counts, every pass block counts. And all of us know in the final minutes of the game that one play can make the difference between winning and losing. Just one play. Now, I like March Madness because I'm a basketball fan, and if you're not, stay with me. Because March Madness and the arena of sport itself, pick your sport, tells us much about the game of life. What's true in the arena of basketball is really true in life. That is, when time is running out, what we believe and how we live really, really matters. This is the big idea, the timeless idea embedded in time by the writer of the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. This is where he focuses this morning in a transitional section of the book of Hebrews. I'd like you to turn there with me this morning if you have your Bible. Hebrews chapter 10, if you are visiting or you've uh, you know, been snowbirding or you've been on spring break, let me just remind you all that uh, we are walking through the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. We know the context is that the listeners, actually it's originally a sermon that becomes a circulating letter, the listeners were first century Christians who were facing hard times. They had faced persecution and difficulty. We'll hear that more next week at the end of chapter 10. And because of the heat being turned up on their life, they were beginning to let go of their faith. They were beginning to drift from the gospel. 
So the writer of Hebrews, like a coach who's huddling his team in the last two minutes, encourages them to keep on keeping on, to persevere in their faith. We see that sprinkled throughout this amazing book, but it really is powerfully focused in the section of chapter 10. Now, as thoughtful listeners and thoughtful readers of the text and thoughtful people in general, we need to understand where we are. And when we look at verses 19 through 39, this is a literary section that is framed with a sober expectation that time is running out, that Jesus' second visit to this planet will soon take place. That Jesus' death, His resurrection, and ascension have now ushered in the final two minutes, the final stage of God's gracious plan to restore a broken world. What we hear in the text is God's time clock ticking down. Now, let's remember that one day, one day yet future, like a referee in a basketball team, the refs will say, and here the one ref, the father himself, will say, time's up, game over, zero hour. We also need to know that the Bible tells us that God not only is outside of time, He created time, that God the Father is the only one who knows When zero hour takes place in human history, Peter says a thousand years are like a day to God. We need to keep that in mind. We also need to keep in mind that Jesus told us to anticipate this day. That is, if we are following Him. And logically, we know that even though we're in the 21st century, compared to first century followers of Jesus, when this was written, God's time clock has ticked down further that there is now less time before zero hour than there was in the first century. We know that. So the sense of urgency and concentration is ratcheted up. The writer of Hebrews wants us to know that time is running out. And he wants us to raise the question, then what does that mean for us? How should we live? How do we flourish in these final days after the resurrection of Christ? Now, as we enter this text, before diving in, again, as thoughtful readers of the sacred text, the Holy Scripture, notice its literary structure. Notice how it is encoded in structure. What happens here in the original language in verses 19 through 25, it is one contiguous sentence. So this is one main thought that connects together. It builds to a crescendo. And the crescendo is in verse 25, and it drives the meaning of this text. That is, the day, zero hour, predicted by the prophets of old, spoken of Jesus, is going to take place. Time is running out. And notice what the Hebrew writer does and does not do, because unlike current, uh, often, writers of books and theologians and pastors and all kinds of people, they hold this idea of focusing on when. It sells books, makes us curious. But the writer of Hebrews is not primarily focusing on when zero hour takes place. Notice, that's not his primary concern. 
His focus is, how do we live in light of zero hour approaching? That's his theme. Now, I want you to notice how he carefully arranges this. Think again um, as a coach who's huddling his basketball team in the last two minutes. He gathers his team together and gives them three impassioned exhortations. First, he says, and you'll notice if you're taking notes or you're creating a sort of mental scaffolding, in verses 19 through 22, he says, stay confident, stay confident in the gospel. Then he says, secondly, in verse 23, which is the lynch pin structurally of this text, hold on to the gospel, stay confident, hold on to the gospel, and then he builds to the third impassioned plea, and that is come together for the gospel in verses 24 through 25. So the focus of this text is the day is coming, stay confident in the gospel, hold on tightly to the gospel, and come together for the gospel. So let's begin. The first impassioned plea by the writer is to stay confident in the gospel. Look at verses 19 to 20. Let me read those again. Therefore, brothers, and the language here is brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. Now, I want you to notice this English word, therefore. It's always important to see the logical connection of the writer's thinking, but in this case, in particular, it's more important because this is a transitional therefore for the whole book, not just chapter 10. What the writer has been doing all this time is unpacking the glory of Jesus and the glory of the gospel, lest we drift from the gospel. And so now he summarizes in verse 20 all that he has said before in this phrase, the new and living way. Do you see that? The gospel, properly understood, is not good advice that patches up all lives. <laughs> the gospel is good news, and it's good news that brings a brand new life, a new way of believing, a new way of seeing the world. It is a new and living way. It's an all-encompassing transformation. Do you see that? So this is why we do not need to drift but we can stay confident in our faith, even when the heat is turned up, even when life is hard. Our Christian confidence, the writer says, is not dependent on how good we are or bad we are, how smart or winsome we are, how religious or irreligious we are, or even the strength we feel of our faith today, but solely, and he's taken 10 chapters to hit this point, but solely on the finished work of Jesus on the cross and his glorious resurrection. The writer of Hebrews is concerned will drift from the gospel. So what is the gospel? The writer of Hebrews is crystal clear. The writer of Hebrews has told us in 10 chapters what it is. That is that Jesus, the sinless Son of God, came to earth in space and time. He lived a sinless life. He took your sin and my sin on himself. He shed his innocent blood as an atoning sacrifice on the cross. And in doing so, Jesus, the Lamb of God, satisfied the righteous wrath of a holy God. And he paid the penalty of your sin and mine in full. 
He then gloriously rose from the dead. He defeated death. He ushered in new creation, restoration, and He offers us complete forgiveness and gives us a new creation life when we repent of our sin and place our trust in Him. And the question for us as we work through this text is, have we, in repentance and faith, embraced the good news? And if you have entered the new and living way Jesus opened for you, if you embraced Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, the text says you can stay confident, I can stay confident in the gospel. No matter what circumstances my life face, no matter what doubts taunt your mind and heart, no matter what discouragements and disappointments and loss you face in life, your heart does not need to be paralyzed, but buoyant with hope. Because the text tells us you and I are so deeply loved and we are secure in Jesus. You and I are Christ's beloved. The writer of Hebrews has gone out of his way in 10 chapters to tell us this. I've not met this pastor, but I'd like to someday. His name is John Tyson. John is uh, the senior pastor of Trinity Grace Church in New York City, and I'm sure by what I read about him, his flock is well served. But he recently said this. He said, if you don't know you are the beloved, you will have to be the star of every story. The gospel frees us up from having to prove ourselves as the coolest kid in school, the best salesperson at work, the best husband or wife, the smartest, brightest, beautiful. It frees us up from having to be the star. frees us up from self-absorption, from impressing others, from having to feel good about ourselves and allowing us to see ourselves as Jesus sees us. When you and I are Christ's beloved, through the gospel, our hearts resonate now with the Hebrew writer who now invites us to draw near, in verse 22, with a true heart and full assurance of faith. When you and I are unconditionally loved, totally acceptable to God through Jesus' finished work on the cross, we are his beloved and we are invited in to intimacy with him, to draw near. But notice it's not just draw near, it's draw near as the day draws near. And the reader of Hebrews is asking the question, are we drifting or are we, are we drawing now, we live in a day in the 21st century that is much like the first century when this was written in the Roman Empire. And I really appreciate that because the world of the Bible in the first century is so much like the 21st century today, where many religions and worldviews are making truth claims and seeking followers. We often hear others say, and I would be a rich man if I had a buck for every time I heard this. There are many paths to God. It's common thinking today. I often hear what matters most is not what you believe, it's, what, it's, it's that you believe. Let me be respectful and honest. That kind of thinking is nonsensical, let alone perilous. Religious faiths make exclusive and often contradictory claims about truth and reality. 
Christianity makes exclusive claims. Jesus said it. I don't know how you can say it clear. Jesus said, I am not, it's not an indefinite article, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. Wow. In our cultural context, that's often a chalkboard moment. Some of you might be feeling that right now. We often have dissonance for exclusive claims like that, don't we? And you you may be here this morning, and I'm so glad you are. And you're pushing back from that idea. But let me just challenge you with love and respect. As a thoughtful person, let me encourage you to deal with Christian faith responsibly, not dismiss it as a caricature. Christian faith has an integrity and coherence to it from Genesis to Revelation. And it's not just how Christians are to behave in the world, that's important, but what Christians are to believe. What Jesus and the Bible clearly teach. It does matter what you and I believe. One of the people that are talking a lot about this is a very interesting guy that I read just about everything he writes. Harvard grad, brilliant scholar. His name is Charles Murray. Have you read some of his books? Wonderful social critic. Coming Apart, other books he's written. I find him extremely insightful. The Wall Street Journal yesterday highlighted the new book that Charles Murray Murray is um, about to release. (laughs) And uh, I love the title, The Curmudgeon's Guide to Getting Ahead. Charles Murray is a very serious thinker in our culture. And he is talking to a culture that has lost its moorings about truth and knowledge and virtue, about how to live life well. And get this, I love his honesty and transparency. And in the book, he says this. Presently, as he says it, I still consider myself an agnostic. And then he says this. But I'm an agnostic where my unbelief is getting very shaky. And he calls for an intellectual engagement with people of faith. And to be a person of faith means you are a person of thoughtful intellect and respect. So wherever you are this morning, will you honestly engage with what the Christian faith really teaches and who Jesus is? And the book of Hebrews is a marvelous place to jump in for that, for that conversation and encouragement. And if you're a Christian this morning, are you staying confident in the gospel? Or are you drifting from it? How are you responding to your friends at school, students? Your neighbors at work, or neighbors, your colleagues at work, friends, your family members who are either agnostic or devoted to another religious faith? Do you love them as image bearers of the one true God who have intrinsic value? And do you love them enough to share your faith with them with a respectful and humble confidence? See, what we often miss today is that both gospel boldness, I'm not talking about arrogance, both gospel boldness and gospel love are fruits of a confident faith. So the writer of Hebrews says, be confident in the gospel. But notice next as he 
pivots in this text, he gives us the next impassioned plea, as the coach does when the time's running out. He says in verse 23, hold on to the gospel. Hold on. Notice the text, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is What he's saying to the first century followers of Jesus, what he's saying to us today is this. He says, don't let the gospel slip through your fingers. Hold fast to notice what the text says. The confession, which is a verbal confession of our hope. And the word hold fast is fascinating. Remember I said in an earlier message that the writer of Hebrews uses very sophisticated language. Uh, some of the most sophisticated Greek in all the New Testament because he borrows a lot from classical Greek. And he pulls a word that is translated stirrup. Do you see that in your text? If you have a translation that's sort of encourage one another, help each other, that's just, that's just off. It's just too mellow, too passive. Because this word is only used twice in the New Testament. It is used by Dr. Luke, who wrote Luke and Acts, who was a very bright and educated fellow. And he plucked this from classical Greek. It's used in Acts chapter, if you want to look later, Acts uh, chapter 15, in the disagreement between Barnabas and Paul. It's an intense engagement. It's not like, oh, whatever. It is patting a fellow teammate on the back in the huddle saying, suck it up, come on, let's go. The game is about to be done. We can hold on together. It has a tenacity that will not let it go, period. That's the idea. The writer of Hebrews plucks this word and brings it right into this text. He says, don't only just be confident in the gospel, Hold on to it with tenacity. Thanksgiving, uh, our family was introduced to our new member in our family. Uh, I bonded with my new member of our family very well because my daughter Sarah and Marshall came back from Cleveland and introduced us to Tucker. Here's Tucker. He's a little <laughs> golden doodle, designer dog, right? And they brought him home as a puppy. And for three days, I bonded with Tucker. And Liz, you know, Liz is the, the Santa Claus in our family, and she already had a Christmas present for Tucker, our grand dog. <laughs> and her Christmas present was this little toy, doggy toy, of a monkey. You know, I wanted that monkey. I, I tried to grab that monkey from Tucker... <laughs> Tucker just dug his heels in. I mean, he's a little fellow. Sunk his teeth into that sock monkey, and he would not let it go, no matter what. I just pulled him like this. He just wouldn't let go. This is what the Hebrew writer is describing. Because what we treasure, we tenaciously hold on to. That was Tucker's treasure. <laughs> we all have treasures. Person, money, success, people, good grades. What we treasure, we hold on to. 
And what the Hebrew writer is saying, what do you treasure? The gospel itself is the treasure. And he says, hold on to it. Hold on to it tenaciously. Refuse to let it go. Again, notice how the gospel is framed in proposition of confession of sound doctrine. Do you see that? It's not that the Christian faith is not a commitment, a lifestyle, clearly it is, or the way of Jesus. The gospel, the faith once delivered for all in the book of Jude, is a verbal proclamation and verbal confession. It has truth content. In other words, tenaciously holding on to the gospel reminds us, and the writer reminds us, that what we believe is important, that sound doctrine matters. Because the content of our belief shapes the contour of our lives and our communities. And notice on the back side of that in verse 23, it's not only the content, it's the character of the person we trust, Jesus, the one whose promises are as good as gold. So let me ask you, as I've asked myself, are you tenaciously sinking your teeth in to the gospel? Are you holding on to it or are you letting it go? You may be here this morning sensing your faith is slipping away. Christian faith you thought you bought into is different than you imagined. Maybe you feel God has let you down, and when we feel God has let us down, we begin to let go of Him. Our family has let us down, our church has let us down, leaders have let us down. Maybe you have been hurt by Christians and wounded by Christians. I'm sorry about that. Maybe you've seen their hypocrisy. Maybe there's a persistent sin in your life that you've asked God to help you get rid of, and it keeps greeting you every morning a struggle, a desire, a longing. Maybe the termites of cynicism and disappointment and bitterness have eaten you up inside and your faith is just hollow. The writer of Hebrews says, don't let go. Don't let go. Hold on. Take the next step. Because he is saying a faith believing is a faith worth wrestling for. That's a nice touch. I love the story of Jacob in the Old Testament. Often Jacob gets overlooked. Jacob was a piece of work, if you've studied the Old Testament in Genesis. Jacob was named Israel. In fact, the whole nation of Israel is named after Jacob. And one of the most amazing things in the story is Jacob was a wrestler. And I like that because I was a wrestler for a long time. That was my life. If you've ever wrestled someone for six to eight to ten, nine minutes, depending on your structure, you know you are absolutely exhausted. Six, eight, or nine minutes. The story in Genesis is that Jacob wrestled with a divine wrestler. Not for six or eight minutes, but for all night. And there's a wonderful picture of faith here because as the dawn breaks, Jacob refuses to stop. He refuses to let go. He continues to wrestle. 
And his opponent, his divine opponent, whatever that all means in the text, wants to call it a draw. That's the idea. And Jacob says, no way. I'm not letting you go until you bless me. And the text says, this divine visitor, this formidable opponent that Jacob wrestled at Paneo, which means the face of God, blesses him. But faith that's worth wrestling for often leaves a limp. Jacob limps the rest of his life. Because a maturing faith that has confidence and tenacity is not a pretty faith. It's not a scar-free faith. But it's a powerful faith. Some of the greatest blessings of God in your faith journey and mine are not the dark night of the soul. It's coming out of that. It's on the backside of our greatest struggle. Often God's intimacy is the sweetest. And many of us never experience it because we're not willing to wrestle with our faith. Hold fast to the gospel. He says, and he says, you're not alone. Notice how the text goes. Let's come together for the gospel. Verses 24 through 25, he says, come together. He says, let's consider how to stir up one another to love and good deeds. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another more and more. The picture is of a coach. Rallying his troops, his team, because the buzzer is approaching. Locked arm in arm, he says, we can do it. Have confidence. Hold on to the end and come together as a team as you've never come before. And what we have here is a picture of the triad of faith. You'll notice as an observant uh, observer of the text, you have the Christian triad laid here. Faith, hope, and love. Confident faith, tenacious hope, do you see it? And inspiring love. And then he says something he shouldn't even have to say. It's kind of awkward, actually, in the flow. He says, okay, don't forget, don't, don't neglect meeting together. Because the gospel calls us not only to Jesus, and that's important as an individual, but it also calls us to a new community. His church. Listen, I, along with several members of our congregation, attended a conference around the church in Iran. The country of Iran, perhaps like North Korea, there's just a handful. Iran is one of the most oppressive places in the world for all people, but particularly for Christians. One of our ministry partners at Christ's community is working with the church in Iran, and it was a powerful weekend. One of the most amazing moments of the conference, I wish you could have been there, was hearing from a courageous and contagious young woman, an Iranian woman by the name of Ladan. She shared her story, and I'm just giving you a silhouette for security. She shared her story, this beautiful young woman who followed Jesus who had just come out of Iran in 25 days of solitary confinement. 
simply because of her faith, proclaiming the gospel and loving Jesus. There was not a dry eye in that entire auditorium. And three things stood out to me like HD definition. This beautiful young lady understood how precious the gospel was to her and her passion to share it with others who might face a crisis eternity without it. There was no blurring, no whatever. It was a matter of life and death. Clarity, crystal clarity. Secondly, how Jesus met her in that solitary confinement little cell block in supernatural ways to care for her. And lastly, how precious fellowship with other Christians really is when it's taken away. Something most of us, me, take for granted when I have the privilege of worshiping with you every Sunday. The persecuted church around the world has much to teach us. They have a confident faith, gospel faith. They have a tenacious gospel hope and an inspiring gospel love. So is your faith inspiring to others or is it draining others? See, we don't just come together to worship as important as it is or to serve or to get involved in local church because we need it for our own flourishing. Certainly that's important for our needs. But that's not the whole picture. We come together for the good of others too. And to remind each other that time is running out, that the intensity of the game is picking up, that perhaps today the big day will come because it's going to come someday. When God says, time out, time's up, game over. God's clock is ticking. Time is running out. So how are we doing? Our own faith journey, but how are we doing coming together as a church? Let me challenge us for your own reflections today and the rest of the week. How I see kind of three congregants' response. First is this, someone who is emotionally disengaged, an emotionally disengaged loner. Thinking of a basketball team, the final minutes, the coach is rallying his team in the last minutes, and a member of the team is physically there, but they're not engaged with the team. They haven't bought into the mission. Congregant, perhaps sporadic in attendance at church, going through the motions, but really not on the team, not sold out to the mission. Maybe, if you're honest, this describes you, friend. Maybe you've been disengaged because you're simply so busy. I mean, we all struggle with that, don't we? You live such a frenetic pace, you have nothing left to give somebody else. Time, talent, or treasure. Maybe you've been wounded by the church. That happens. I'm sorry about that, but it happens. Or another congregant in business, or some deal, or You don't want to get wounded or disappointed again, right? Perhaps you're just feeling depressed, tired, discouraged. You've convinced yourself the church will depress or discourage you more. And the truth is, involvement with other followers of Jesus is just what you need. Maybe you've convinced yourself you don't need to be in a small group or be connected to a small group of people. Students may think the youth group is not that cool. There's someone you don't like there, so you're going to skip it. 
What does it mean to come together? Second kind of person, I think, is a self-absorbed drainer. Well, the coach is trying to rally the team as the buzzer is about to be set off. All you can think about is your own life, your own problems, your own disappointments. Either with the game or with the coach. Maybe think God has dealt you a bad hand in life. Perhaps you think the church should be done differently. Or maybe you have a critical spirit with the church or a pastor. Or maybe you are the ultimate Christian Eeyore. I have moments like that. People come and say, Tom, hey, a little, little positive energy here, okay, buddy? How do you move out of a self-absorbed funk? I think the text reminds us that it's about getting our eyes on Jesus and on others and serving others, not ourselves. So instead of thinking of yourself all the time, your needs, your disappointments, start looking for ways you can serve others, both within the church and in our community. How about instead of rolling your eyes in cynicism or disgust or disappointment or criticism about all the problems in the world and all the problems in your life, why not roll up your sleeves and serve others? The clock is winding down. The clock is winding down. Third, let's be encouraging energizers. Maybe you can relate to the first two and say, I want to be more of an encouraging energizer. This is a member of a team when the star player whether they're a star player or a bench warmer, or they're just on the team, they're grateful to be on the team, amen? Sinners saved by grace like you and me. And they're all about encouraging others. They don't have to be extroverts, like the Energizer Bunny. Encouraging Energizers is not about one's personality, but one's heart. It's not about one's age, but one's attitude. If you're not going extrovert, I just envy you. I'm amazed. But if you're an introvert like me, your timely words can still put wind in other people's sails. And you can rally other people on who are getting ready to drift, either through false teaching, in discipline of their life. You can come alongside and encourage them to hold on to the gospel. to help others, to encourage others, to stir up each other. We've got to know each other, and we've got to be together. So I want to again encourage you for that community group opportunity or a small group opportunity. How can you stir up someone if you're not connected to them? What kind of person are you today? What steps do you and I need to take to stay confident in the gospel and to hold on to the gospel and to come together with others Will we draw near to Christ and to one another as we see the day drawing near? Or will we drift in apathy and indiscipline and loss of mission? At that conference about the Church of Iran after Laden spoke, we had a time of corporate praise and worship. The global church, the full body of Christ, we had a window in from all over the globe. Liz and I were at a table right here at this table. It was where Aladdin sat. And after she got done speaking, she stood right there, and I'm standing right here. And she started praising Christ with her beautiful voice. And I was just a wreck. Tears just poured down my face. Because I don't think I've ever felt smaller 
around this hero of the faith who's laying everything out for the gospel. And I found myself not only undone, but tears of joy. Because standing next to this precious young lady, I felt like I had a glimpse, just an appetizer, a taste of what is to come. When Christ's followers from every tribe and tongue will gather and worship Jesus in perfection and honor. That day is drawing near, the Hebrew writer says. When Jesus returns and believers from every tribe and tongue will praise him, time is running out. The question is, will we draw near to Christ as he draws near? We're reminded of this important truth when we gather around Holy Communion. The Apostle Paul could use many different languages, but what he does in 1 Corinthians 11.25 is we celebrate the Lord's coming and return In 1 Corinthians 11.25, notice what Paul says as we prepare to come and celebrate communion. He says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. As we partake of the communion table this morning, I'd like you to bow your heads and your hearts as you prepare to come to the holy table. Hear the words of Hebrews of the new and living way the gospel provides, made possible through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The Hebrew writer has said, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, Draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Our gracious Heavenly Father, how we praise you for what Christ has done for us and the forgiveness and new life he offers us. In the future day that is coming, when there will be no more tears or pain or suffering, We confess our attitudes of heart that are wrong, actions that have been done or a lack of doing, and we confess our sin to you. May we find mercy and grace to draw near to you in our time of need, whatever that is. May we be committed not only to our Lord Jesus Christ as apprentices of him, but may we be committed to one another as his church and fill our hearts, whatever age we are, with the glorious hope that the day draws near, that our hearts long for. In Jesus' name.